So the Lord blessed me uh, this week with a, um, with a rather perfect opening illustration, if I do say so myself. I can say this because I stole it, but I was given it, so it wasn't really stealing. Anyway, I, was on, I happened to be early in the week before I was actually putting pen to paper. I was on chalice.com. That, uh, you know, are you familiar with Tim Chalice's website? If not, great Christian website. You should check it out. Daily updates with lots of new stuff. And anyway, there was a LinkedIn article about a shipwreck. And I went, oh, I'm preaching on a shipwreck. And I clicked on it and, and, and read that real quick. It turned out 70 years ago this last week, so January the 31st of 1953, there was a very bad shipwreck, uh, one of the worst since, you know, a, a non-wartime shipwrecks after the Titanic in the last century. It was the wreck of the H, uh, I'm sorry, the MV Princess Victoria. This was a, um, a ferry. How, how many have ever driven onto a ferry with a car? How about one of the, how about the big ones where you drive down in and, you know, and, and it's kind of a spooky ship because it's, it's, it's very open. They have gates and whatever they put up. But what happened in this instance, they were, they were going from Scotland over to Northern Ireland. They're in the Irish Sea and something malfunctioned. They were in bad weather and the, the door came open, couldn't be shut. No matter what they did, they couldn't shut it. And so water just started pouring into this ferry and eventually it, it went down. And it took the lives of all the women and children aboard. I'm not quite sure why it worked out. that we, There were survivors, but most, most perished and all of the women and children died. One woman aboard was a woman by the name of Nancy Bryson. She was a missionary from Scotland to Africa, and she had come back on furlough. And, and doing what a, a good Christian servant would do, she went around the ship. She spoke words of encouragement and comfort to people. She sang hymns with people where she could. And then um, even as they were going down, she tried to save the life of a three-year-old girl and, uh, and ended up sinking under the waves herself. In contrast... The article explained there was another woman, very noticeable woman. Um, she was trying to get to the lifeboats, and she had on a couple furs, <laughs> a couple fur coats. Like she probably had a couple for the trip, and she put them both on. And she had um, her bags. She was holding, clenching them, and people were like, "Let go of the bags, lady! You know, there's no time for that." And she was dragging them along. She said, "This is all the money I have in the world." And she died, and her body was seen floating in the water, still with the furs on, and her hands in just a death grip, still clenched to her bags. And what an interesting contrast that is. I mean, it's an tra- absolute human tragedy, but, uh, you know, imminent peril, the idea of, of, of imminent death, has a very distinguishing power to it, doesn't it? That you see the difference The Bible says, whoever has the Son of God has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And when we are in one of those just crises, these life and death moments, all of a sudden it it becomes very clear who has life and who does not. Day by day, we look the same to the people around us in the world. We're going different directions. We have whole different ideas of, of what we're confident in. But, you know, we share, we share the same space. We live in the same cities. We, we dwell in the same, uh, you know, age, the same time. We look so much the same. We even buy tickets to the same ferry, as it might be. We get on the same ship, pay the same fare, 
And yet, boy, when it comes to that moment of death, you see the difference, don't you? So my big idea today is before you perish, be certain that you have Christ. Before you perish, be certain that you have Christ. Now there's a lot of drama in the shipwreck episode that we're looking at today and a lot of story arcs through the book of Acts. It's always interesting when you're reading and studying to try to try to see where's the passage going? How does it fit the rest of the book of Acts? Well, we know on the big level, on the big story arc, as we've been talking, this is about the kingdom of God, the advancement of the kingdom of God. Going all the way back to 1.8, it said, you know, that the gospel would begin in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. And this is just that, that continuing outward until Paul gets to Rome. At the same time, there's all kinds of stuff just right here in the story to look at in and of itself. There's all this humanity there's all the, this, this pathos, this striving, fears, our fears and our insecurities about, you know, our impotence against the, the wind and the waves as human beings. We're so small when, when you get right down to it. And so all of that's in there. Um, yeah, but, but we're going to look at it from the standpoint of that, of that, yeah, that differentiation between those who have Christ and those who don't. So first of all, those without Christ fear. Those without Christ fear. We find out in verse 27 that they've been lost at sea for 14 days. That's a long time. Interestingly, on a side note, um, if you're not a, a believer and you've been told a lot of hogwash about how the Bible's unreliable, it, you know, years ago people thought Luke had made everything up. Because Luke would use words and talk about things that historians didn't know to be true, and they'd go, oh, he was just making that stuff up. And then archaeologists keep finding, you know, found through the years, every, every term, everything he's used, they find some monument that, that attests to the fact that Luke was correct. Here's the interesting thing. The 14-day bit, if you put it into a computer and you tell it the, the, the wind and the wave calculations, the time of year and everything, do you know that you would end up exactly where they ended up after 14 days? And then, and then people have the audacity to say, oh yeah, Luke, Luke, it wasn't even Luke, it was somebody else making it up 100 years later, you know, sitting in the bar going, well, I bet they went on a 14-year, well, whatever. Um, anyway, so they're driven across the Adriatic, uh, which at that time, if you look at your map there, which you have in your bulletin, you'd think, well, how did they get that far north into the Adriatic Sea? Well, in ancient times, they didn't, they didn't call that the Adriatic Sea. They actually called that portion that you see in the map, they called that the Adriatic Bay. And the Adriatic actually was, was uh, considered to extend further south. So they're, they're, they're heading right in that line that you, that you see. Fourteenth night, they realize they're getting close to land. How do you know you're getting close to land in, at night when you're out on the ocean? Paul doesn't, or Luke doesn't bother to tell us that. Uh, I, 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 maybe birds, could be birds, you know, shorebirds that they see showing up or they hear them or they see them in, in flight. Uh, I wonder if it's just the aroma. Like, I'm really a scent-sensitive person. Can you say that? Yeah, I have a good smeller. That's, I don't smell good, but I smell good. Well, um, but I, you know, I wonder, like, I think, I, I think if I were them, it would be the smell coming off of the uh, island of Malta that I would catch and pick up on the earthiness of the, of the wind or something, something. Anyway, they know they're getting close as the bottom line. And so even though they threw the tackle overboard, they must have, for this very purpose, held on to what's sometimes called a lead line, uh, a sounding line. It says, so they took a sounding, that, so they, that means they took a rope with, you know, markings on it. 
um, and they found 20 fathoms. You know what a fathom is. A little further on, they took a sound, and it was 15 fathoms. You probably don't know what a fathom is, but it's the, it was, essentially it was the length of, of the middle fingertip on both hands when you stretch it out this way. When a man stre- so I'm a little shy of a fathom is what it amounts to. But uh, yeah, it was about six feet. It was about six feet. And uh, so that means that they were, um, they were at, at one point, uh, 120 feet in depth. And then just a moment later, they take a sounding again. They're 90 feet. Well, what does that tell them? They already sensed they're getting near to land. And now all at once, boom, boom, that, sh- that bottom of the ocean is getting shallower and shallower. So they, now it says, and fearing that we might run uh, on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. So they feared. They feared that they were going to run aground, and, and they started to pray. And apparently it gave them small comfort. Um, there's a lot about this story that reminds you of the story of Jonah. People have noticed this. There's parallels, and then there's kind of inverse parallels between Paul and Jonah. You know, Jonah was reluctant. Paul is very willing. But uh, they're, they're, they, get in that tr- they get in that place of trouble and they pray. Remember in Jonah it said uh, that they, came, they come to Jonah, the men on the ship, the sailors, and they say, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your gods. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So the pagans in both cases are, are praying. But even, you know, even in the way they say it to Jonah, and I think what you read between the lines here is that It's like when you throw spaghetti at the wall to see if it'll stick. You do that, right? It's a classic way of knowing if it's done. You throw it against the wall to see if it'll stick. They're throwing their prayers up like, hey, everybody get involved here. Pray pray to your God. And yet it seems like they have very small comfort. They are panicking. Fear will make people also do some cowardly, immoral things. Uh, We all know that from the movie Titanic. Correct? Well, maybe you've not seen Titanic. I'm not recommending it. But there is that, that dastardly guy, Cal. You remember him? Billy Zane's character. And uh, he gets onto a lifeboat. You remember how he gets onto the lifeboat? He grabs a little girl who's just orphaned and crying. He's like, I'm the only person she has in the world. And they let him onto the lifeboat. Well, that's what happens. People, especially when people don't have any, any, any faith or confidence Um, They will do bad things. Well, it says, and as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors. Think about this. These are the only people that can sail the ship. Admittedly, they've thrown most of the, you know, the tackle and so forth overboard, but they're the only ones that know the sea, and they're like, you know what, this ship is going to go down, and we're going to save our sorry hides, and they actually are lying. They, oh, yeah, we got to go, you know, throw some anchors out here, we'll be back in just a half a second here. And Paul is on to him, so Paul makes them aware of it, and Julius, uh, you know, orders the soldiers to, I, I probably yank them by the by the shirt tail back into the ship and they, and they cut the lines to the boat and they let it go. And so now it's sink or swim. Now it's everybody either is going to die together or survive together. Next, what we see is that Paul it takes charge of ship morale. Takes, <laughs> ship morale is low. They've gone without eating. Think about this the last time this happened to you. How, when was the last time you went 14 days without eating? Never. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. Oh, yeah. 14 days, Paul, sa- he says you've been in suspense. In other words, you've been anxious. You've been fearful. Think about last time you almost skidded off the road in your car. Do you remember that? How long did that last? Three seconds? Have you ever been, have you ever been worried you're dying for like an hour? How about 14 days aboard a ship that is just seems like it's going to go to the bottom of the ocean and you've been on it and you haven't eaten. You've been, you've been completely frightened. That's, that's what the kind of situation is. John Wesley, you know John Wesley, founder of Methodism, but uh, he was a pretty good guy actually. Well, back in January of 1736, Wesley, who was not yet a confident Christian. He was not yet certain of his own salvation. He was actually on his way to the U.S. to be a, a missionary to the Native Americans. But he, didn't, he wasn't confident that he was saved. And he, he's on his way. Well, the ship gets into trouble, and it looks like they're going to go down. And in the midst of this storm, there's these Moravian Christians aboard, uh, German-speaking Christian uh, people. And uh, he noticed that whereas the English-speaking people aboard were wailing and gnashing their teeth and fearful, he noticed that these German Moravian guys, they seemed pretty cool and calm and collected about the whole thing. So when it was over, he went over to one of the Moravian men and he said, I know, you know, you didn't seem afraid during this storm. And he goes, uh, he says to him, I thank God, no, I, I was not afraid. And then Wesley was like, well, what about your women and children? They seemed okay too. Like, it's okay for men to be brave, but how come the women and children were brave? And he, sa- and he says to him, our women and children aren't afraid of dying. And that was just revelatory to John Wesley. Life and death moments like that sort set us on one side of a divide or another. Those who have Christ have confidence they need not be afraid. Now, fear is normal and fear is human, and I'm not saying that we, that we never feel anxious, but we have a source of confidence and assurance that the world does not have. And you notice it in those situations. It's said of Bonhoeffer, you know, and when Bonhoeffer was in, in Nazi prison, that, that his hope and his confidence was in stark contrast to those around him who were atheists and agnostics. They had no hope. It was all doom and gloom, but he lived with a sense of confidence and hope, and you could just see that dividing line right there. So we need to get a hold of that, Christian. If you know Christ today, if you're confident that you know him, then then get hold of that, because those with Christ have courage, or should, right? Those with Christ have courage Uh, Fears may arise, but we persevere. We have something besides just uh, the anxiety. Paul is kind of a a quasi-pastor prophet here of a flock of 275 souls. Rather than succumbing to fear, he leads and cheers the faint-hearted out of his strength, the strength that he has in the Lord. It says, therefore, I urge you to take some food. This is Paul kind of, it's just, you can, even though I know there's, it's a small ship and you, it's hard to picture, but, but somehow he, he had them kind of gathered around and he urges them to take food for it will give you strength. You're going to need it. For not a hair on your hair, head, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. So they're going to survive. He promises they're going to make it. And he, and he urges them in this sort of fatherly, priest-like manner to, to take and, and to eat because they need their strength. 
Why do they need their strength? Because they're going to be swimming to shore here before long. And, and he just urges them. to. Yeah, but but he, he's, he's just exuding this, this comfort and strength. It's interesting, within a short period of time, you'll notice this. If you're looking for like words that repeat and ideas that repeat in the passage, twice Luke uses the word urge, and once he uses the word encourage. So Paul is an encourager. Paul's an encourager. He's facing the same sea, the same furious breakers, the same darkness, the same unknown, the chance of having your body broken on a reef or a rock or drown, and yet he is full of comfort. The Holy Spirit comforts him, strengthens him, his confidence in the Lord, the Lord's word to him, his promise gives him that, that strength, and he exudes that, and it comes over to them. He has, an, he has kind of an infinite supply out of which he can give comfort to them. And then Paul does something that mirrors what Christ did with his disciples, and I find this quite interesting. And I would not suggest that some, some people might, but I don't think this is a communion service exactly. Paul is, for the most part, these 275 other people on there they're not believers in Christ. Paul has a small group of Christians with him. Everyone else, they're unbelievers, they're pagans, they don't know the Lord. So this isn't, this isn't going to be a communion service. And yet, I don't know when I was reading that, did, you, did it hit you that those words sounded an awful lot like the words I used when, I, when, I, when we served communion, quoting Jesus? Yeah, they very, listen to them. I think, I think though it's not a communion service, I think there's an echo of it here so that the Christian reading it is encouraged, but also it's like there's almost like an invitation, that desire. We want to bring people into our strength. We want to bring them into the courage we have in Christ. We want to bring them into the very source of that around the Lord's table. He said, and when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it. Now you're thinking, and gave it to them. No, broke it and began to eat. Then all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. See, by taking the food and eating it in that context, Paul is just, Paul is showing them that they can take courage, that things are going to be okay. It's like his way of entering into that and by example saying, look, look, I'm eating, it's going to be okay. Now you do the same thing. And when they see his boldness, when they see, and remember, Paul's been right about several things he's predicted, and he's just told them not a hair on your head is going to perish. And he eats that food, and in that moment, they're like, yes, yes, and they were encouraged to eat. It's almost like, um, you know that famous story of Mobile Bay? I'm looking for Carl. Carl would remember that because he teaches American history. But there's that, that famous, you know, uh, 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 what was it, David Glasgow Farragut? that goes in at Mobile Bay, and, and they've got torpedoes floating there, which are essentially mines, but they called them apparently torpedoes in the Civil War. And, uh, and he utters that famous line, which I can't say from the pulpit, but uh, <laughs> you remember that one? Darn those pesky torpedoes, full speed ahead, or something very close to that. He says that, but anyway, he takes his flagship up against, you know, in the face of, and they've already seen one ship blow up, by the way, uh, and go to the bottom, and, and so, but, but he, he just, you know, there's nothing left to do but go, and he goes, and then the other ships follow, and the rest is, is history, as they say. There's a kind of confidence that that instills by example. It's like when David was able to slay Goliath. You remember that? 
The, the Israelites had been all fearful and full, you know, they were full of fear and anxiety. They didn't know what to do in the face of the Philistines. And the moment that David goes into battle and destroys the giant, all at once they rise up with a shout and all at once they have this courage because of the example that's been set for them. Here's the question. Can we follow Paul's example here? Can we be in the world that God has placed us in, in the environment where we are among unbelievers, are we as Christians able, by example, by confidence, to bring the unbeliever along with us and in doing so, you know, kind of, kind of start leading them toward the table, as it were, leading them toward Christ? To ask the question is to answer it. Of course we can. Of course we can because, again, how we look at danger, how we look at life and death matters it, it are completely it, it, different than the world. So if we're faced, oh, I don't know, uh, what if all at once there was like a contagion that was spreading throughout the land and people were getting sick and dying? Like, oh, I don't know, like COVID, something like that. That such, such a, for such a time as that, the church can be strong. What about when gas prices are soaring and home prices are crashing and 401ks are falling apart? Maybe it's when, uh, when you're aboard a ferry and it's sinking and you can go around and, and encourage people and quote scripture and sing hymns with them. Those who have Christ know a peace, the Bible says, that transcends all understanding. Amen? God has given every believer that. It is yours. Now, maybe you're not living in that confidence. Maybe there are days where you just let the anxiety just so boil up and roll over you that, that you don't see it. But the truth of the matter is it is your birthright, Christian. It is your second birthright to have that confidence, to have that, that, that peace that goes beyond understanding. And that can be seen. That can be seen and that can be felt. And that's, that's where we want to be, Amen. Those with Christ trust God for his rescue. That's our final point. God rescues Paul. The salvation of all 276 lives here is a God thing. We see that, don't we? Reading the scripture, we see that really God is at work. Now, from their perspective, they still did everything they could in human power to survive. And they were right in doing so. After the people were encouraged and ate, they lightened the load by tossing the wheat into the sea. You think, well, why did they do that? There's a really obvious reason for that. First of all, that wasn't going to make it to land anyway. But if you're trying to take a ship, and, you know, we picture these tiny little bit, you know, in biblical times, we think of them as being, this is a big ship. This, this is a good, this got 276 people, and it had grain aboard. It was a grain, grain ship, so... This is a large vessel. They're going to try to run that right up into the shore. Now think about that for a minute. How do you get a ship that big almost all the way to the shore? The idea is you've got to get it to come up as high in the water as you possibly can. That's why they get rid of the wheat. They're going to try to run that puppy right in there. It says, now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So far, so good, right? Now they make the run for it. So they cast off the anchors, left them in the sea. At the same, I'd, I'd like to go back and scuba dive that area and see if I could find those anchors. That's awesome. Every time I get there, I think, oh, I'd like to go try it. Anyway, at the same time, loosing the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresails to the wind, they made for the beach. 
So apparently they'd thrown away a lot of rigging earlier. They must have held on to that one sail. And you picture a sailing ship and you think about the bow. There would have been like that little sail up in front. That They'd kept that. And they, and they hoist that. They untie the rudders. I don't know why they were tied in the first place. I don't understand ancient ships. Or they, had, they actually had like two tiller style rudders. But be that as it may, they untie them in order that they might sail that and navigate the ship through the, you know, kind of through the eye of the needle. They were going to try to get through the reef and the rock and, and find whatever way they could. Now you see why they had to keep the sailors aboard. But they're going to try to run it all the way through there and, if possible, shove it all the way into the shore. Um, they're not letting Jesus take the wheel. But, the, but you understand that's just a metaphor. Like if you're, if you're driving down the road and, and you're, you know, concerned, don't just take your hands off the wheel. That's just, yeah. Best plans go asunder. Here's what happens next. They manage to strike a reef. When I say they manage to strike a reef, I mean they were trying to avoid it. But they hit it anyway. They hit a reef somewhere between themselves where they start and the beach. They're not up to shore yet. The bow of the ship lodges into the reef, the sand, the rock, everything you can picture. Its bow is shoved in there and stuck. And at that moment, for the first time, they've become this immovable object with an irresistible force, you know, bashing against it. And very quickly when that happens, all at once, you know, the stern of the ship just starts to to break into pieces. Now think about poor Paul. Think about all we've seen Paul survive through the book of Acts. Most recently, he's managed to survive two years of imprisonment, multiple trials, multiple conspiracies to get him alone and kill him. He had 40 people fasting just just for the opportunity to slit his throat. And now he's gone through 14 days. He's gone through a typhoon that lasted three days. They've been adrift. Now, Now shipwreck. And then this, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. This is just, the, Paul, Paul, yeah. I don't know about you, but I think that seems a little ungrateful. Just saying, like the night before, they're all like, oh, that Paul's such a great guy. Oh, I feel encouraged. You know, oh, I'm going to make it. That's great. And then the next day, you know, thanks a lot for that, but uh, bye-bye and uh, yeah, that was their plan. That was their plan. People do uncharitable things and, 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 and a lot of uh, immoral things when it comes to saving their own lives. And if you were a Roman soldier and you let someone escape, the penalty was whatever their crime penalty was. Does that make sense? So if, if they were a murderer and they were going to be executed, you would be executed in whatever like manner that they were going to be executed. So, yeah, they are saving their own skin. But... But the centurion wishing to save Paul kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land. So Paul is rescued by divine providence, but it's through the actions of Julius. This was before the YMCA existed. I don't know if you're aware of that. but um, so Or the Red Cross. Any of those things you taught your kids to swim? How many taught your kids to swim in that way as opposed to just chucking them in a lake and telling them, Go for it. Yeah? That, that didn't exist back then. So a lot of people couldn't swim. There were some that could. Most of them couldn't. And so uh, Julius instructs them to grab a hold of that, that ship as it's breaking up some piece of it and take it to shore. There was one, I believe, door where Jack and Rose were. And uh, both of them actually fit under the door, believe it or not. But 
Sorry, that's an inside joke for people that have actually seen that movie. But, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Luke doesn't record the conversation then that took place between himself and Julius, but I imagine a conversation of some kind between the two of them. And I'm thinking at that point, Julius is kind of like, yep, you're welcome, Paul. Yep. Yeah, because, I mean, he did. He saved his life on the one hand, and he, and he took charge, and he did a lot of good things. He, took, he, he made the, the sailors stay aboard the way Paul had asked him to. He kept the, kept the soldiers from killing Paul and so on and so forth. So in my mind, I'm thinking... As, as a good Roman centurion, I bet he thought it was pretty much Roman ingenuity and a good stroke of luck that got them there. And a little good juju from, uh, from Paul. But mostly it was Roman ingenuity. See, those without Christ will look at fortune and misfortune as luck, as evidence that life really isn't fair. And if there is a God, he must not be a very good God. And if there are gods, then they're capricious gods. Or... Modern pagans will just chalk it up to the fact that they believe the universe is a senseless, random thing. And so what are you going to get? But they won't see the providence of God. But Paul, Paul has trusted Christ's promise. He had courage, not because Paul was wired to be a courageous person. I know I've called Paul honey badger, and I think there is some truth to that. But it was in Christ. His confidence, his bravery, his courage was in Christ. He trusted that God had it, that God had sovereignly ordained what was going to come to pass. It didn't mean that Paul did nothing. It didn't mean that he just sat back waiting. He didn't let Jesus take the wheel in that sense. He grabbed a piece of wood to flow in on just like everyone else did. But in the end, he saw this as God's divine rescue. God rescued him. And when Julius kept them from killing him, Paul saw the hand of God in that as well, and rightly so. We who have Christ have this assurance that God will rescue us, and he will, he will. Now, what will that rescue always look like? Maybe not the same way twice. One day you're in a bad accident, and you step out of the car, or what remains of the car and you brush yourself off and people come up to you and say, how did you survive that? And the answer is your God rescued you. On another day, you might be aboard a, share, a, a ferry that sinks and you drown and the angels come and they bear you to heaven to be with your Lord. But in either case, God will rescue the Christian. We have that confidence before you perish, before it gets to that point, make sure that you know, that you know that you know that you have Jesus Christ. If you belong to him and you have him and you know you have him, then you know that you have eternal life. And if you're in that situation, let that fill you with confidence. We ought to be Paul in one sense. We ought to be Nancy Bryson. We ought to be the person who in the midst of, of, of all the tumult and all the fear and all of the wailing, like those Moravians aboard that ship, are calm and cool and collected. Not because we by nature are courageous people, but because we trust in our God, the one who has saved us. If you don't have Christ today, the Bible says something very simple here that I'd like you to understand the Bible says you do not have life. You do not have life. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God 
does not have life. Now, that seems probably like a punch in the face in a way for me to say that. That's what the Scripture says. What I want you to also hear is another section actually from John's Gospel where it says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might have life through him. That offer has been made. Christ has died for sinners. Do you have the security of knowing that you will not perish? That even if you die, yet you will live. Are you sure of that? Are you, are you confident in that? There is a way that God has made. There is a way through all the gloom and destruction. And that way is Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through him. So if you are in that place today where you know that if, that if, it, was, if it was a life and death moment that you would completely panic, if you know that, that you would not have that confidence, then, then repent and believe the gospel today. Believe in Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Don't wait for the crisis. Make that decision today. Let's pray. Lord, on the one hand, we, we pray that as believers in Christ today, that we would just grow in our confidence, not only for our own sake, Lord, but as we've seen in the text, it's, it's not just about us knowing. It wasn't just enough that Nancy Bryson knew she was saved. It wasn't enough that Paul, in his heart, knew that he was going to be okay. Lord, it, it's allowing our, that strength that we have in you to, to be evident to all so that in those moments, in times like that, and, and in whatever situation you allow for, Lord, that, that our confidence and our strength in Christ would be evident so that they would be saved. And we pray for that today. We pray, Lord, that through your word, through the preaching of your word, perhaps good, the good witness of, of, of Christians in, in people's lives, that, uh, that there'd be at least one today who would hear your word and turn to Christ and find salvation. We ask it in his name. Amen. <laughs>